Chapter Sixteen of Mr. Stanfast by John Buchan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Sixteen. I lie on a hard bed. The journalist from Kansas City was a man of action. He wasted no words in introducing himself or unfolding his plan of campaign. You've got to follow me, Mister, and not deviate one inch from my tracks. The explaining part will come later. There's big business in this shack tonight. He unlocked the little door with scarcely a sound, slid the crust of snow from his boots, and preceded me into a passage as black as a cellar. The door swung smoothly behind us, and after the sharp out-of-doors the air smelled stuffy as the inside of a safe. A hand reached back to make sure that I followed. We appeared to be in a flagged passage under the main level of the house. My hobnailed boots slipped on the floor, and I steadied myself on the wall, which seemed to be of undressed stone. Mr. Dunn moved softly and assuredly, for he was better shod for the job than me, and his guiding hand came back constantly to make sure of my whereabouts. I remember that I felt just as I had felt when on that August night I had explored the crevice of the Coolin, the same sense that something queer was going to happen, the same recklessness and contentment. Moving a foot at a time with immense care, we came to a right-hand turning. Two shallow steps led us to another passage, and then my groping hand struck a blind wall. The American was beside me, and his voice was close to my ear. "'Got to crawl now,' he whispered. "'You lead, mister, while I shed this coat of mine. Eight feet on your stomach, and then upright.' I wriggled through a low tunnel, broad enough to take three men abreast, but not two feet high. Halfway through I felt suffocated, for I never liked holes, and I had a momentary anxiety as to what we were after in this cellar pilgrimage. Presently I smelt free air, and got on to my knees. "'Right, mister?' came a whisper from behind. My companion seemed to be waiting till I was through before he followed. "'Right,' I answered, and very carefully rose to my feet. Then something happened behind me. There was a jar and a bump as if the roof of the tunnel had subsided. I turned sharply and groped at the mouth. I stuck my leg down and found a block. "'Done,' I said, as loud as I dared. "'Are you hurt? Where are you?' But no answer came. Even then I thought only of an accident. Something had miscarried, and I was cut off in the cellars of an unfriendly house, away from the man who knew the road and had a plan in his head. I was not so much frightened as exasperated. I turned from the tunnel-mouth and groped into the darkness before me. I might as well prospect the kind of prison into which I had blundered. I took three steps, no more. My feet seemed suddenly to go from me and fly upward. So sudden was it that I fell heavy and dead like a log, and my head struck the floor with a crash that for a moment knocked me senseless. I was conscious of something falling on me, and of an intolerable pressure on my chest. I struggled for breath, and found my arms and legs pinned, and my whole body in a kind of a wooden vice. I was sick with concussion, and could do nothing but gasp and choke down my nausea. The cut in the back of my head was bleeding freely, and that helped to clear my wits, but I lay for a moment or two incapable of thought. I shut my eyes tight, as a man does when he is fighting with a swoon. When I opened them there was light. It came from the left side of the room, the broad glare of a strong electric torch. I watched it stupidly, but it gave me the fillet needed to pick up the threads. 
I remembered the tunnel now, and the Kansas journalist. Then, behind the light, I saw a face which pulled my flickering senses out of the mire. I saw the heavy ulster and the cap, which I had realized, though I had not seen, outside in the dark laurels. They belonged to the journalist, Clarence Dunn, the trusted emissary of Blenkiron. But I saw his face now, and it was that face which I had boasted to Boulevard I could never mistake again upon earth. I did not mistake it now, and I remember I had a faint satisfaction that I had made good my word. I had not mistaken it, for I had not had the chance to look at it till this moment. I saw with acid clearness the common denominator of all its disguises. The young man who lisped in the seaside villa, the stout philanthropist of Biggleswick, the pulpy, panic-stricken creature of the tube-station, the trim French staff-officer of the Picardy Chateau. I saw more, for I saw it beyond the need of disguise. I was looking at von Schwabing, the exile, who had done more for Germany than any army commander. Mary's words came back to me, the most dangerous man in the world. I was not afraid or broken-hearted at failure, or angry, not yet, for I was too dazed and awestruck. I looked at him as one might look at some cataclysm of nature which had destroyed a continent. The face was smiling. I am happy to offer you hospitality at last, it said. I pulled my wits farther out of the mud to attend to him. The crossbar on my chest pressed less hard, and I breathed better. But when I tried to speak, the words would not come. We are old friends, he went on. We have known each other quite intimately for four years, which is a long time in war. I have been interested in you, for you have a kind of crude intelligence, and you have compelled me to take you seriously. If you were cleverer, you would appreciate the compliment. But you were fool enough to think that you could beat me, and for that you must be punished. Oh, no, don't flatter yourself you were ever dangerous. You were only troublesome and presumptuous like a mosquito one flicks off one's sleeve. He was leaning against the side of a heavy closed door. He lit a cigar from a little gold tinder-box, and regarded me with amused eyes. "'You will have time for reflection, so I propose to enlighten you a little. You are an observer of little things. So? Did you ever see a cat with a mouse? The mouse runs about and hides and manoeuvres, and thinks it is playing its own game. But at any moment the cat can stretch out its paw and put an end to it. You are the mouse, my poor general.' for I believe you are one of those funny amateurs that the English call generals. At any moment during the last nine months I could have put an end to you with a nod." My nausea had stopped, and I could understand what he said, though I had still no power to reply. "'Let me explain,' he went on. I watched with amusement your gambols at Biggleswick. My eyes followed you when you went to the Clyde, and in your stupid twistings in Scotland. I gave you rope because you were futile, and I had graver things to attend to. I allowed you to amuse yourself at your British front with childish investigations, and to play the fool in Paris. I have followed every step of your course in Switzerland, and I have helped your idiotic Yankee friend to plot against myself. While you thought you were drawing your net around me, I was drawing mine around you. I assure you, it has been a charming relaxation from serious business. I knew the man was lying. Some part was true, for he had clearly fooled Blenkiron, 
but I remembered the hurried flight from Biggleswick and Eaucourt Sainte Anne when the game was certainly against him. He had me at his mercy, and he was wreaking his vanity on me. That made him smaller in my eyes, and my first awe began to pass. "'I never cherish rancour, you know,' he said. "'In my business it is silly to be angry, for it wastes energy. But I do not tolerate insolence, my dear General, and my country has the habit of doing justice on her enemies. It may interest you to know that the end is not far off. Germany has faced a jealous world in arms, and she is about to be justified of her great courage. She has broken up bit by bit the clumsy organization of her opponents. Where is Russia to-day, the steamroller that was to crush us? Where is the poor dupe Romania? Where is the strength of Italy, who was once to do wonders for what she called liberty? Broken, all of them. I have played my part in that work, and now the need is past. My country, with free hands, is about to turn upon your armed rabble in the West and drive it into the Atlantic. Then we shall deal with the ragged remains of France and the handful of noisy Americans. By midsummer there will be a peace dictated by triumphant Germany. By God, there won't! I had found my voice at last. By God, there will, he said pleasantly. It is what you call a mathematical certainty. You will no doubt die bravely, like the savage tribes that your empire used to conquer. But we have the greater discipline, and the strongest spirit, and the bigger brain. Stupidity is always punished in the end, and you are a stupid race. Do not think that your kinsmen across the Atlantic will save you. They are a commercial people, and by no means sure of themselves. When they have blustered a little, they will see reason, and find some means of saving their faces. Their comic president will make a speech or two, and write us a solemn note, and we will reply with the serious rhetoric which he loves, and then we shall kiss and be friends. You know in your heart that it will be so." A strange apathy seemed to settle on me. This bragging did not make me angry, and I had no longer any wish to contradict him. It may have been the result of the fall, but my mind had stopped working. I heard his voice as one listens casually to the ticking of a clock. "'I will tell you more,' he was saying. "'This is the evening of the eighteenth day of March. Your generals in France expect an attack, but they are not sure where it will come. Some think it may be in Champagne, or on the Aisne, some at Ypres, some at Saint-Quentin. Well, my dear General, you alone will I take into our confidence. On the morning of the 21st, three days from now, we attack the right wing of the British army. In two days we shall be in Amiens. On the third we shall have driven a wedge as far as the sea. Then, in a week or so, we shall have rolled up your army from the right, and presently we shall be in Boulogne and Calais. After that Paris falls, and then peace." I made no answer. The word Amiens recalled Mary, and I was trying to remember the day in January when she and I had motored south from that pleasant city. Why do I tell you these things? Your intelligence, for you are not altogether foolish, will have supplied the answer. It is because your life is over. As your Shakespeare says, the rest is silence. No, I am not going to kill you. That would be crude, and I hate crudities. I am going now on a little journey, and when I return in twenty-four hours you will be my companion. You are going to visit Germany, my dear General." That woke me to attention, 
and he noticed it, for he went on with gusto. "'You have heard of the Untergrundbahn? No? And you boast of an intelligence service. Yet your ignorance is shared by the whole of your general staff. It is a little organization of my own. By it we can take unwilling and dangerous people inside our frontier to be dealt with as we please. Some have gone from England, and many from France. Officially, I believe they are recorded as missing, but they did not go astray on any battlefield. They have been gathered from their homes, or from hotels, or offices, or even the busy streets. I will not conceal from you that the service of our underground railway is a little irregular from England and France, but from Switzerland it is smooth as a trunk-line. There are unwatched spots on the frontier, and we have our agents among the frontier guards, and we have no difficulty about passes. It is a pretty device, and you will soon be privileged to observe its working. In Germany I cannot promise you comfort, but I do not think your life will be dull. As he spoke these words, his urbane smile changed to a grin of impish malevolence. Even through my torpor I felt the venom, and I shivered. When I return, I shall have another companion. His voice was honeyed again. There was a certain pretty lady who was to be the bait to entice me into Italy. It was so? Well, I have fallen to the bait. I have arranged that she shall meet me this very night at a mountain inn on the Italian side. I have arranged, too, that she shall be alone. She is an innocent child, and I do not think that she has been more than a tool in the clumsy hands of your friends. She will come with me when I ask her, and we shall be a merry party in the Underground Express." My apathy vanished, and every nerve in me was alive at the words. "'You cur!' I cried. "'She loathes the sight of you. She wouldn't touch you with the end of a barge-pole.' He flicked the ash from his cigar. "'I think you are mistaken. I am very persuasive, and I do not like to use compulsion with a woman. But willing or not, she will come with me. I have worked hard, and I am entitled to my pleasure, and I have set my heart on that little lady.' There was something in his tone, gross, leering, assured, half contemptuous, that made my blood boil. He had fairly got me on the raw, and the hammer beat violently in my forehead. I could have wept with sheer rage, and it took all my fortitude to keep my mouth shut, but I was determined not to add to his triumph. He looked at his watch. "'Time passes,' he said. "'I must depart to my charming assignation. I will give your remembrances to the lady. Forgive me for making no arrangements for your comfort till I return. Your constitution is so sound that it will not suffer from a day's fasting. To set your mind at rest, I may tell you that escape is impossible.' This mechanism has been proved too often, and if you did break loose from it, my servants would deal with you. But I must speak a word of caution. If you tamper with it, or struggle too much, it will act in a curious way. The floor beneath you covers a shaft which runs to the lake below. Set a certain spring at work, and you may find yourself shot down into the water, far below the ice, where your body will rot till the spring. That, of course, is an alternative open to you, if you do not care to wait for my return." He lit a fresh cigar, waved his hand, and vanished through the doorway. As it shut behind him, the sound of his footsteps instantly died away. The walls must have been as thick as a prison's. I suppose I was what people in books call stunned. The illumination during the past few minutes had been so dazzling that my brain could not master it. 
I remember very clearly that I did not think about the ghastly failure of our scheme, or the German plans which had been insolently unfolded to me as to one dead to the world. I saw a single picture, an inn in a snowy valley. I saw it as a small place like Peter's cottage. A solitary girl, that smiling devil who had left me, and then the unknown terror of the underground railway. I think my courage went for a bit, and I cried with feebleness and rage. The hammer in my forehead had stopped, for it only beat when I was angry in action. Now that I lay trapped, the manhood had slipped out of my joints, and if Ivory had still been in the doorway, I think I would have whined for mercy. I would have offered him all the knowledge I had in the world, if he had promised to leave Mary alone. Happily he wasn't there, and there was no witness of my cowardice. Happily, too, it is just as difficult to be a coward for long as to be a hero. It was Blenkiron's phrase about Mary that pulled me together. She can't scare and she can't soil. No, by heaven, she couldn't. I could trust my lady far better than I could trust myself. I was still sick with anxiety, but I was getting a pull on myself. I was done in, but Ivory would get no triumph out of me. Either I would go under the ice, or I would find a chance of putting a bullet through my head before I crossed the frontier. If I could do nothing else, I could perish decently. And then I laughed, and I knew I was past the worst. What made me laugh was the thought of Peter. I had been pitying him an hour ago for having only one leg. But now he was abroad in the living, breathing world with years before him, and I lay in the depths, limbless and lifeless, with my number up. I began to muse on the cold water under the ice where I could go if I wanted. I did not think that I would take that road, for a man's chances are not gone till he is stone dead, but I was glad the way existed. And then I looked at the wall in front of me, and very far up I saw a small square window. The stars had been clouded when I entered that accursed house, but the mist must have cleared. I saw my old friend Orion, the hunter's star, looking through the bars, and that suddenly made me think. Peter and I had watched them by night and I knew the place of all the chief constellations in relation to the San Anton Valley. I believed that I was in a room on the lake side of the Pink Chalet. I must be, if Ivory had spoken the truth. But if so, I could not conceivably see Orion from its window. There was no other possible conclusion. I must be in a room on the east side of the house, and Ivory had been lying. He had already lied in his boasting of how he had outwitted me in England and at the front. He might be lying about Mary. No, I dismissed that hope. Those words of his had rung true enough. I thought for a minute and concluded that he had lied to terrorize me and keep me quiet. Therefore this infernal contraption had probably its weak point. I reflected, too, that I was pretty strong, far stronger probably than Ivory imagined, for he had never seen me stripped. Since the place was pitch dark, I could not guess how the thing worked, but I could feel the crossbars rigid on my chest and legs, and the sidebars which pinned my arms to my sides. I drew a long breath and tried to force my elbows apart. Nothing moved, nor could I raise the bars on my legs the smallest fraction. Again I tried, and again. The sidebar on my right seemed to be less rigid than the others. I managed to get my right hand raised above the level of my thigh, and then with a struggle I got a grip with it on the crossbar, which gave me a small leverage. With a mighty effort I drove my right elbow and shoulder against the sidebar. 
It seemed to give slightly. I summoned all my strength and tried again. There was a crack and then a splintering, the massive bar shuffled limply back, and my right arm was free to move laterally, though the crossbar prevented me from raising it. With some difficulty I got at my coat-pocket, where reposed my electric torch and my pistol. With immense labour and no little pain, I pulled the former out and switched it on by drawing the catch against the crossbar. Then I saw my prison-house. It was a little square chamber, very high, with on my left the massive door by which Ivory had departed. The dark balks of my rack were plain, and I could roughly make out how the thing had been managed. Some spring had tilted up the flooring and dropped the framework from its place in the right-hand wall. It was clamped, I observed, by an arrangement in the floor just in front of the door. If I could get rid of that catch, it would be easy to free myself, for to a man of my strength the weight would not be impossibly heavy. My fortitude had come back to me, and I was living only in the moment, choking down any hope of escape. My first job was to destroy the catch that clamped down the rack, and for that my only weapon was my pistol. I managed to get the little electric torch jammed in the corner of the crossbar, where it lit up the floor towards the door. Then it was hell's own business extricating the pistol from my pocket. Wrist and fingers were always cramping, and I was in terror that I might drop it where I could not retrieve it. I forced myself to think out calmly the question of the clamp, for a pistol bullet is a small thing, and I could not afford to miss. I reasoned it out from my knowledge of mechanics, and came to the conclusion that the centre of gravity was a certain bright spot of metal which I could just see under the crossbars. It was bright, and so must have been recently repaired, and that was another reason for thinking it important. The question was how to hit it, for I could not get the pistol in line with my eye. Let any one try that kind of shooting with a bent arm over a bar, when you are lying flat and looking at the mark from under the bar, and he will understand its difficulties. I had six shots in my revolver, and I must fire two or three ranging shots in any case. I must not exhaust all my cartridges, for I must have a bullet left for any servant who came to pry, and I wanted one in reserve for myself. But I did not think shots would be heard outside the room. The walls were too thick. I held my wrist rigid above the crossbar, and fired. The bullet was an inch to the right of the piece of bright steel. Moving a fraction, I fired again. I had grazed it on the left. With aching eyes glued on the mark, I tried a third time. I saw something leap apart, and suddenly the whole framework under which I lay fell loose and mobile. I was very cool, and restored the pistol to my pocket, and took the torch in my hand before I moved. Fortune had been kind, for I was free. I turned on my face, humped my back, and without much trouble crawled out from under the contraption. I did not allow myself to think of ultimate escape, for that would only flurry me, and one step at a time was enough. I remember that I dusted my clothes, and found that the cut at the back of my head had stopped bleeding. I retrieved my hat, which had rolled into a corner when I fell. Then I turned my attention to the next step. The tunnel was impossible, and the only way was the door. If I had stopped to think, I would have known that the chances against getting out of such a house were a thousand to one. The pistol-shots had been muffled by the cavernous walls, but the places I knew was full of servants, and even if I passed the immediate door, I would be collared in some passage. But I had myself so well in hand that I tackled the door as if I had been prospecting to sink a new shaft in Rhodesia. 
It had no handle, nor, so far as I could see, a keyhole. But I noticed, as I turned my torch on the ground, that from the clamp which I had shattered, a brass rod sunk in the floor led to one of the door-posts. Obviously the thing worked by a spring, and was connected with the mechanism of the rack. A wild thought entered my mind and brought me to my feet. I pushed the door and it swung slowly open. The bullet which freed me had released the spring which controlled it. Then, for the first time, against all my maxims of discretion, I began to hope. I took off my hat and felt my forehead burning, so that I rested it for a moment on the cool wall. Perhaps my luck still held. With a rush came thoughts of Mary and Blenkiron and Peter, and everything we had laboured for, and I was mad to win. I had no notion of the interior of the house, or where lay the main door to the outer world. My torch showed me a long passage with something like a door at the far end, but I clicked it off, for I did not dare to use it now. The place was deadly quiet. As I listened, I seemed to hear a door open far away, and then silence fell again. I groped my way down the passage till I had my hands on the far door. I hoped it might open on the hall where I could escape by a window or a balcony, for I judged the outer door would be locked. I listened, and there came no sound from within. It was no use lingering, so very stealthily I turned the handle and opened it a crack. It creaked, and I waited with beating heart on discovery, for inside I saw the glow of light. But there was no movement, so it must be empty. I poked my head in, and then followed with my body. It was a large room, with logs burning in a stove, and the floor thick with rugs. It was lined with books, and on a table in the centre a reading-lamp was burning. Several dispatch-boxes stood on the table, and there was a little pile of papers. A man had been here a minute before, for a half-smoked cigar was burning on the edge of the inkstand. At that moment I recovered complete use of my wits and all my self-possession. More, there returned to me some of the old devil-may-careness which before had served me well. Ivory had gone, but this was his sanctum. Just as on the roofs of Ezerum I had burned to get at Stumm's papers, so now it was borne in on me that at all costs I must look at that pile. I advanced to the table and picked up the topmost paper. It was a little typewritten blue slip with the lettering in italics, and in a corner a curious involved stamp in red ink. On it I read, Die Wildvögel müssen heimkehren. At the same moment I heard steps, and the door opened on the far side. I stepped back towards the stove, and fingered the pistol in my pocket. A man entered, a man with a scholar's stoop, an unkempt beard, and large, sleepy, dark eyes. At the sight of me he pulled up, and his whole body grew taut. It was the Portuguese Jew, whose back I had last seen at the smithy door in sky, and who by the mercy of God had never seen my face. I stopped fingering my pistol, for I had an inspiration. Before he could utter a word, I got in first. Die Vögelein schweigen im Walde. His face broke into a pleasant smile, and he replied, Warte nur, balde ruhest du auch. Ach, he said in German, holding out his hand, you have come this way when we thought you would go by Modan. I welcome you, for I know your exploits. You are Conradi, who did so nobly in Italy? I bowed. Yes, I am Conradi, I said. End of chapter 16